1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, five weeks before the election, the governor is allowing the statewide mask mandate to expire. Then the president told them to stand back and stand by. We learn more about a militia the SPLC labels a hate group. Plus, in today's book club, the true story of a woman who became a nun, who became a doctor, who became a godsend to a small town in Tallahatchie County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is no longer under a statewide mask mandate. Governor Tate Reeves allowed the executive order carrying the mandate to expire yesterday afternoon. Reeves says despite the lift on masks, he still urges Mississippians to practice personal responsibility.
3: I still believe that masks work. I think the facts and the data in our state and across this country bear that out. I still plan to wear one, and I expect that most people in our state will still wear them often. It is the smart, it is the prudent, and it is the wise thing to do. But there is a difference between something being wise and something being a government mandate. We have to reserve that for the most critical, most dangerous moments. As I've said throughout, as a general rule, guidelines are better than mandates. We need to trust the people of this country to look after themselves and to make wise decisions. Personal responsibility is what this country was founded upon. It's what makes America unique.
1: New cases of COVID-19 have moderately flattened over the last six weeks. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the trend can continue if residents continue to practice public health guidelines.
2: Without a doubt, we've come so far, and if we can just maintain just enough of masking, just enough distancing in small groups, we can continue this trend. So I strongly implore everyone to please keep up what you're doing, and if you haven't been really doing it, I mean, I encourage you to change now. One of the things about the masks, I think we're learning more and more that it also is very protective of the wearer. So even, you know, if you're going somewhere and other people aren't wearing masks, wear your masks, protect yourself and protect your family. And then local communities, I think that makes sense for some folks to really, to really, to do it locally. I think it certainly does make a lot of sense. And so, um, would encourage them to uh, look at what's going on in their area so that they can protect their residents.
1: Governor Reeves says the mask mandate has led to a decline in the number of coronavirus cases in the state. He says at the peak in July, cases averaged 1,382 per day for a week. Now, he says, cases are averaging under 500 per day for a week. Reeves says he'll wear a mask, but the numbers don't justify keeping a mask mandate in place.
3: And the reason I'm not concerned that what I am saying is mixed messaging is because I'm looking in this camera and I'm telling the people of Mississippi that I believe it makes sense to wear a mask. I believe that it works if you will stay socially distanced. I believe that staying in smaller groups is much better than larger groups. I believe that outdoor gatherings is safer than indoor gatherings, and our executive order reflects that. But I also believe for the heavy hand of government to tell you that you must do something then the underlying conditions should justify it when we were at our peak and we were making those decisions the numbers absolutely justified it but because of the work and the effort of the people of mississippi we're in a different spot now
1: the expiration comes on the eve of flu season dr dobbs believes the changing weather could bring added challenges to a state still navigating covid-19 concerns
2: you know certainly for flat we can go up or down right and so it's going to be dependent on some of the choices we make, both you know collectively and individually uh, you know we had We had a lot of headwinds coming into this. We had uh, universities starting up, we had schools starting up, we had labor day, and so i 'm not going to say it's not implausible that we'll turn down as we sort of process through some of that sort of challenge. But going into the colder weather, we have some other challenges. Uh, people might be indoors more, maybe less outdoor stuff get togethers, holidays um you know school functions and so there are competing uh, issues and a lot of it, it it's really hard to predict um you know like, like the governor said i mean we're we're watching it daily closely every single bit of information that we have and and really it's just kind of in our hands and if if we will really really just take it seriously what we did over the past couple of months it worked and so i don't know why we wouldn't choose to keep doing it and it works and not have to go back and do some of the more restrictive things we've done previously.
1: The left also comes less than five weeks before Election Day. The Mississippi Supreme Court ruled last month that personal concerns over the pandemic did not qualify a voter for an absentee ballot under state election law. Governor Reeves says the state has been successfully conducting elections during the pandemic.
3: We've had elections in our state multiple times on multiple days, Over the last six months, uh, we did it for the 2nd Congressional District Republican Primary for Congress. We did a runoff election. We did a special election in Humphreys County. Just last Tuesday, we had special elections in Lawrence County, Lincoln County, uh, in parts of Kapai County. Uh, We had a special election just last week in Hines County, in Lowndes County, in Octobahaw County. Um, We had special elections that went down, uh, maybe even got some of um, um, Choctaw County. Many counties uh, throughout our state have had elections. Uh, To my knowledge, we have not had any major challenges. Um, We are going to continue to monitor as we move into Election Day. Um, And we certainly uh, plan to, again, make sure that people can go to the polls, they can vote, they can do it safely, Uh, That has happened countless numbers of times over the last several months in our state, and I am fully confident that on Election Day in early November uh, that will be the case. I'll follow up to that first question, if I may. Uh, The special elections that you um, just mentioned, were those not conducted under a statewide mask mandate? Um, Many of them were. Many of them were not.
1: Dr. Dobbs recognizes the absence of a mask mandate on Election Day causes concern for many voters. He urges voters to be responsible and wear a mask as they head to the polls.
2: It's so important, I think, for everyone to please wear a mask when we go to the elections. If you look at the number of people who, who are older who had coronavirus and died, we have a lot of deaths, but not nearly as many cases. And I think a lot of older folks, a lot of people with chronic medical conditions, have been staying home, trying to stay out of crowds. And we know that people are going to come out to vote. And this is going to be a time when our more vulnerable people are going to take a little bit more risk. And so for people, be respectful of your parents, of your grandparents, of people in your community who've been trying to protect themselves. It's a very, very thoughtful thing to do. So even if you're kind of an anti-mask person at this one moment, please wear a mask. And if you're going um, and you are vulnerable, please wear a mask, too, because, um, you know, it, 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 it makes a big difference. And. And this is a big part of our democracy. So just we're going to be really promoting everybody wearing a mask.
1: For Nishomi Landright, a member of One Voice, a nonprofit focused on voter registration and census response, health care is a key issue in the upcoming election. As she encourages others to register, she tells our Kobe Vance the importance of health care reform.
4: Definitely, health care reform is a very important um, issue for us. We're still pushing for Medicaid expansion. That's going to be very important for our state in terms of um, increasing access to health care. In rural communities and communities in Jackson, we are all um, suffering. Um, We can see the results from COVID and how much... um, of an importance health care is in Mississippi. So that's definitely a hot-button issue. I think one of the other important issues is criminal justice reform, When we look at what's happening to our prisons. Our prisons in the state are in crisis right now, and we really need to um, push for policy that um, makes sure that our prisons are in condition enough where, you know, folks' human rights are, are respected. Um, and that people aren't just kind of languishing in jail forever and ever in Mississippi with long, inappropriate sentences. And now were you
3: concerned that the president did not denounce um, far-right groups like like uh, white supremacists?
4: Yeah, I was very concerned uh, about that and very disappointed um, that he didn't use that opportunity to denounce those groups.
1: The Shelby Landright is a member of the nonprofit One Voice. Coming up, the president told them to stand back and stand by. We learn more about a militia the SPLC labels a hate group. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. It was a moment from Tuesday's presidential debate that caught the nation's attention.
2: I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White Proud supremacists and white supremacists. White and boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the
1: left organizations that monitor hate groups and other extremists, like the aforementioned Proud Boys, are concerned that those ideologies could be spreading across the country after President Trump did not directly denounce white supremacy at Tuesday night's debate. The Southern Poverty Law Center is currently tracking 12 hate groups in Mississippi. The Alabama-based organization monitors how such groups spread across the country. Cassie Miller, research analyst at SPLC, says the Proud Boys tact- have been pretty standard since their founding in 2016.
0: Their playbook has been the same really since 2016. Um, They announce and hold a rally in a city that is historically pretty progressive, um, someplace like Portland, in the hopes of getting counter-protesters to come out and inciting violence. Um, And they use that violence to their advantage, um, to argue that the left is inherently violent, um, and to argue that you know any violence on their side is self-defensive and it is justified and they use that to create this narrative that um, repression and retaliation against the people that they consider their political enemies is justified Um, and they have a wide list of political adversaries but at the top of that are leftists and anti-fascist counter protesters Um, and so since 2016 we've seen them host dozens and dozens of rallies around the country most of them focused in places like Portland and Seattle and throughout California.
1: With President Trump saying something should be done about the left, groups like the Proud Boys have taken to social media, selling t-shirts emblazoned with the word stand by. Miller says this messaging intersects with their ideology.
0: We did see them, you know, for as much as they were organized and mobilized, up until 2018, uh, we did see them lose a little bit of their steam in uh, October of that year when 10 of their members were arrested. Um, The founder of the group held a speaking event and afterwards there was a confrontation between members of the Proud Boys and anti-fascist counter protesters um, And that resulted in 10 members of the group getting arrested and two actually serving prison time for that assault. And that kind of took the wind out of their sails and we saw them back away from on the ground organizing in a way that we hadn't before. Um, But more recently, really since the beginning of the pandemic, we have seen them become reemboldened and we've seen them holding more rallies, especially in places like Portland, um, in Philadelphia and across Michigan. Um, And that's for a number of reasons. But the largest is that they see the left and anti-fascists as their predominant enemies. And as the left has become more mobilized, they have become more mobilized in response.
1: The group received considerable attention when a teenager with connections to the group was involved in the killing of two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Miller says the incident has acted as a catalyst for the group.
0: One event that's really kind of helped to catalyze the group over the last several weeks um, is Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse was uh, accused of murdering two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, recently at a protest And the Proud Boys have taken him up as a sort of martyr figure. Um, And so they've referred to him as a hero. um, In some of their propaganda, they have depicted him as a saint. um, And they have come together to defend him and to defend vigilante violence. Um, And so Trump's recent uh, statement yesterday at the presidential debate is something that really emboldened them, that thrilled them, um, and that I think is going to add some legitimacy to the group. Um, They immediately began celebrating his comments that the Proud Boys stand by. They were promoting it on their social media. They were turning it into a meme. Um, They have taken the words stand by and put them on T-shirts that they're now selling at their store. And that is the main way that the group funds itself. Um, And so I think what we're going to see is that Trump's words have really Mobilize the group and that we're going to see them uh, come onto the ground and um, do on the ground organizing to a larger degree than we've seen um, in recent weeks.
1: Governor Tate Reeves, who's a staunch supporter of the president, was asked whether he condemns white nationalist groups at Wednesday, Wednesday's press briefing.
3: Yes, I condemn white nationalist groups. Um, I watched the debate last night and your interpretation of what the president said is is not Uh, The way in which I interpreted it, um, I saw on uh, this past week and and actually um, tweeted about it. um, If you follow uh, me on Twitter, uh, wherein the president uh, condemned both the KKK and Antifa as uh, terrorist groups, uh, and I supported uh, his uh, effort to do so.
1: Proud Boys do not currently have a chapter in Mississippi. Coming up in today's book club, the true story of a woman who became a nun, who became a doctor, who became a godsend to a small town in Tallahatchie County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Should medical marijuana be legal in Mississippi? Voters will decide when they head to the polls in November. Two medical marijuana proposals are on the ballot. Initiative 65 and Alternative 65A. Join me, Desiree Frazier, for a special hour-long at issue. You'll hear arguments for and against both measures. Tune in to MPB-TV radio and online and call in your questions. Wednesday, October 14th at 7 p.m. Hi, I'm Chris Boyd, host of Think, a call in
2: program coming to MPB Think Radio starting Monday, October 5th. Each day I sit down with scientists, politicians, artists, and authors from around the globe for an in depth conversation. Join me as we learn something new and take a moment to think. That's Think, starting Monday, October 5th. Coming to you weeknights at 10 on
0: MPB Think Radio.
1: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A young woman become, became a nun, then in middle age became a doctor. Her tuition was waived in exchange for spending three years in an underserved community. That's how Sister Ann Brooks ended up in the small town of Tutwaller in Tallahatchie County. After her three-year obligation was completed, Sister Brooks decided to stay. So she did for three decades in the book power of one author sally palmer thomason chronicles her journey starting with the debilitating arthritis and the doctor who treated her
5: she was still wearing a back brace and had had tremendous treatments for her arthritis and he said i can help you and she didn't believe him at first he said no i can and this osteopath treated her for around two years And she walked for the first time in 18 years upstairs, could go without free of a brace. She was free of the wheelchair. He encouraged her to go to medical school. She got her tuition paid for medical school by promising through a government program that she would serve in a place of need. For the three years that would comparable to her medical education.
1: And how did she end up in
5: Tallahatchie County? She wrote letters, and Tutwiler answered her letter and said, "We need someone to come open the clinic that has been closed for five years because no doctor will stay here." How old so was
1: she when she went to Tutwiler?
5: She, forty-three years old. And she stayed. She stayed right at thirty years. But she was so dedicated, and realized the need was so great. I mean, it's just amazing. Now, the majority
1: of her patients couldn't pay for their services. That's correct. That's correct. How did she keep
5: that clinic open? She was making talks everywhere about the needs. Well, People Magazine picked up and gave a story, and a fellow who was a producer for 60 Minutes went down to Tuttweiler, and he was enchanted with what Sister Ann, Dr. Brooks was doing. And he then aired it on 60 Minutes and donations started rolling in. She started the clinic in 83 with two nuns and herself, When she retired, she had a staff of 29 through the donations. Her commitment
1: was was quite remarkable. Let me interject here. I want to read a little bit from this people interview because it gives a sense of what she was up against and what she had to overcome. She said, women don't drink water before going out in the fields to chop cotton because there's no place to go to the bathroom and they're embarrassed. So they become dehydrated. Some diabetes patients can't refrigerate their insulin because they have no electricity. And some patients have no tablespoons with which to measure medicine. You see things here, you see nowhere else. I guess we're doing a lot down here, but nothing ever seems to change. And it's
5: remarkable that she stuck with it. They had had doctors there before she came. The, the, the clinic was built in the 60s. And for 15 years, they had tried to have doctors through this program and no one would stay. She came and she worked miracles. By the time she left, the town had been cleaned up. There was integrated activities. There were habitat houses built close to the clinic. There was a community center where the kids could play basketball and get computer lessons. She had a bargain barn where people from all over the nation were sending goods to put in the bargain barn that could be sold for pittance. So the people had clothing and appliances and such as that.
1: What would you like our listeners most to understand about Sister Brooks?
5: I think the thing that is so impressive is she was so dedicated to helping in a holistic understanding of the needs of people that she related to them in a very caring but professional way and tended to their whole self. And she was a very good physician because many people who could afford to pay in Tallahatchie County would drive over and be treated by Dr. Brooks. I think the power of her faith, but her commitment to what she knew was right, even in very discouraging times, was amazing. And the other thing is that the whole time in all of her writings and everything, she never referred to
1: the color of someone's skin. The book is called The Power of One, Sister Ann Brooks and the Tutwiler Clinic. And we've been speaking with Sally Palmer Thomason, who, along with Jean Carter Fisher, wrote the book. And I thank you so much for being with us and shedding some light on this remarkable woman. Thank you, dear.